Well, we are beginning uh, a new uh, series of conversations in the book of Revelation. It is Revelation singular. Um, uh, there is all kinds of visions and stories and all kinds of things going on in the book of Revelation, but it is one revelation with a lot of visions and other things going on inside it. So you can show off your uh, your knowledge to somebody like I just did. So um, next time you hear them say Revelation. So um, uh, the word Revelation... Um, uh, is a translation. Some of you may have older Bibles and you may remember the word apocalypse. Apocalypse uh, is, is the same word that is translated revelation. And in our culture today, apocalypse has uh, come to mean the end of the world. If I say he had an apocalyptic outlook on the stock market or something, it means the end, the end is near, something like that. But the word actually simply means to uncover something, to reveal something, to disclose something. Um, it means to cause something to not be hidden anymore. So if you think of the the Wizard of Oz, when Toto runs off in the throne room and pulls back the curtain, revealing the wizard, the great and terrible Oz, who then says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, that is an apocalypse. Toto has performed an apocalypse right there in the throne room. And that's what the word means. It means to peel back the curtain, to, to lift the curtain, to help people to see what had been hidden in the past. So it's not actually a threatening word at all, depending, of course, on the content of the revelation. Um, uh, I personally have um, not done much teaching from the book of Revelation. I've, I've preached a, a handful of times from the book of Revelation, but I've kind of cheated because I picked my my sections very carefully, and I got kind of a piece that that is pretty straightforward and easy to understand, and I skip the weird stuff above and the weird stuff below um, because it's weird stuff. And so I have not done a lot of preaching in the book of Revelation, and we're going to do some of that during this series. So I'm going to man up a little bit and maybe do some. So um, uh, the flip side of that, though, and maybe you've, you've heard of preachers like this, uh, in, in the town I, uh, where my uh, the church I served last uh, was located um, on the radio, there was a Christian Christian broadcasting station, and um, at 4 or 4.30, I forget, but in the afternoon, if I was driving around anywhere, I would have the radio on, and there was a guy who, during the five years I lived in that community, never preached, never once, on a topic other than Revelation. So if there are people like me who preach from Revelation too much, well, I mean, too little, there's, there's certainly people who preach from Revelation um, too much. And uh, hopefully we'll find a better balance um, today. Um, and, and yet, I, I haven't taught from the book of Revelation, but it is a fascinating book. It's a very comforting book. Certainly the last two chapters, as we'll see, are very comforting. But the um, book as a whole is fascinating. About 1990, I'm not sure exactly when, um, it was shortly after I was married, Margo and I lived in New Jersey, and we went up to um, uh, New York to visit with some friends, and we went to an off-Broadway uh, uh, playhouse. It was very off-Broadway. It was in Manhattan. Um, but other than that, it was in the same island as Broadway. But it was very small. You probably could have fit four of those playhouses into the the, the, the room, um, into our room here. So it was very small. But I saw a performance. It was a one-man show of a man doing a dramatic reading of the book of Revelation. He had memorized it, which was very impressive in itself. But all there was was a couple of lighting cues and him you know, reacting to the things he saw in a way that it's like, wow, that's really impressive. Uh, the book begins and ends with John saying that there is a blessing on those who hear the book read and those who read it. And uh, certainly in my case, I found myself very blessed by his 
uh, performance of the book of Revelation. And my prayer is that you will get some blessing as we go along. Um, but there is a question of how we will read the book of Revelation. Um, uh, it, is, it is fantastic. When we read something about Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth, we have to ask ourselves, what do I do with that? You know, I've seen pictures of Jesus, you know, on the cross. I've seen pictures of Jesus with, uh, with a baby in his arms or a lamb over his shoulders. But I'm having trouble embracing the idea of Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth. So we have to ask ourselves, how do I make sense of the book of Revelation? And the answer is, we have to treat it as literature. There is a particular class of literature called apocalyptic literature, and it gets its name from uh, this book, this book of uh, Revelation. But uh, there's actually a number of other examples of apocalyptic literature, both in the Bible and uh, external to the Bible, dating from the same period of time. And the reason for that is because the, the, the category of literature you're reading matters. If I'm reading poetry, then I interpret words one way. If I'm reading a physics textbook, I read them a, a different way. If I'm reading history, I understand them a still different way. And we're going to learn some ways to read apocalyptic literature. And there's three basic ideas behind apocalyptic literature. The first one is very obvious. It's the imagery, the, the images and the parables, things like that. I think I've got a list here of the three things. Uh, yeah, so visions and parables. So visions and parables, uh, there's, uh, John is having a vision and it is a very vivid vision. And so, uh, the, the, this type of literature is characterized by that. There's also a lot of allegorical meanings. What does it mean that Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth? Well, we actually heard the answer from that early in our service in the book of, uh, Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews. It says the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. So apparently in the first century, it was a common understanding of the, the Christian community that the word of God was sharp and it divided things. And so he's saying that what came out of the mouth of Jesus was this word of God that divided people. So there's an allegorical meaning. And so we have to watch for those allegorical meanings and say, where where else have I heard that phrase in the scriptures? Or, or what could that possibly mean? And we're going to do some of that today. The other thing we have to watch for is numbers because numbers have a certain significance of their own. To a Western mind, uh, that maybe isn't as obvious to us, but uh, to an Eastern mindset, uh, the number seven is a, is a unique thing, and it really doesn't matter if it's six or eight. It's seven, because seven's significant. And so the best way I can think... Oh, and one other thing. Uh, apocalyptic literature is almost always written by people who are in a context of suffering. Uh, this is not a beach reading. This is not something you're just kind of reading because of the fun, uh, the fun of reading it. Uh, it is uh, people uh, who are being addressed because of a terrible situation that they're in. But it's not pie in the sky. It's usually actually the very opposite of pie in the sky. It's saying things are going to get worse but then they will eventually get better. It's saying, it's saying, no, it's not that we're on a, you know, kind of we, we've hit bottom and now we're headed back up. It's saying we still haven't hit bottom. It's going to get worse. But there is light at the end of the tunnel. So it's not, a, it's not an optimistic book. Apocalyptic literature is not typically optimistic, but it is hopeful. It's not optimistic, but it's hopeful. So those are the characteristics of apocalyptic literature and the best way I can think of to, to kind of sum them all up, uh, came, came to me last fall. There was an article written in the um, Atlantic Monthly by um, Selena Zito. And she said about Donald Trump, she said the problem with Donald Trump is that his supporters 
take him seriously, but not literally. And the press takes him literally, but not seriously. And so it kind of got to be a little catchphrase. I saw some smiles when the, um, when the phrase came up. And that's the way I think we can read apocalyptic literature. And I'll leave it for you to decide whether Donald Trump is an apocalypse or not. Um, so uh, she said this about Donald Trump, and that reminded me of a phrase that uh, Bruce Metzger, um, who was the Bruce Metzger, was a, a great, uh, a towering um, uh, expert uh, scholar in biblical studies. He uh, was one of the leaders of the Revised Standard Bible translation project back in the 1950s and then in the 1970s and 80s he actually was the the head uh translator for the um new revised standard version of the bible and when he was asked how to interpret uh, the meaning of the book of revelation he said it doesn't mean what it says it means what it means and so that's the way we're going to approach the book of Revelation. Not looking with it, uh, a wooden literalism where we say we picture Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth, but to understand what is the meaning when John tells us that there is a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. So if you uh, turn with me now to the scriptures, we're going to look at um, the the vision of the Son of Man is the heading in my Bible. There's some opening material. John has a kind of a greeting and uh, typical uh, characteristics of letters, and we're going to skip over that. I don't want to spend five years in the book of Revelation. But um, but we begin in chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, John says, I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. He says, I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. If you picture Robben Island in South Africa, or you picture Devil's Island in Guyana, uh, the idea of an island, even Alcatraz, the, the idea of an island prison where you get rid of the people you don't want to have anything to do with, uh, that's what Patmos was. John was exiled there because of the testimony of Jesus. What, what had happened, the context that's going on here, uh, is starting about the time of Caesar Augustus, uh, the Roman emperors... Uh, instituted something called the imperial cult. They said that you had to uh, venerate the emperor as a god. You had to actually say the emperor was a god. Now, to most of the pagan cultures around the Mediterranean world, that was no big deal. They already had hundreds of gods. One more was no big deal. There was no rule that said he had to be your favorite god. You could still go on and worship Zeus or Athena or whatever. That was fine. You just had to add him to your list. And so for most of the pagan cultures, it's like, okay, fine, I make my offering once a year. No big deal. But the Jews had, uh, over the past hundred years, uh, fought back. They, they fought and lost. They, they just would not accept the idea that they had to add a God, that they had to venerate any human as God. And so they fought and lost. There was rebellion after rebellion. And finally the Romans got tired of killing them and said, okay, we're going to make an exception for you. If you're a Jew, you don't have to venerate Caesar. Okay, just keep it quiet. Don't make a big deal of it, but no, you don't have to venerate Caesar. So that was a special carve-out, a special exception for Jews. And the problem that happened then is Jesus. Because as Jesus' followers spread throughout the Roman world, they introduced Jesus to a lot of people who were not Jewish. They had been a worshiper of Athena or Jupiter or whoever, and now they've become Christians, and they don't want to worship 
the God of, of um, the, 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 the Roman emperor any more than the Jews did. But they're not Jews. They grew up in a Gentile home. They, they used to be a Mars worshiper or whatever. And the Romans said, what are we going to do about this? If we let them have an exception too, then everybody who gets a crazy idea in their head will say they want an exception. And we need this rule because we don't want to just be a political leader. So that's what happened. John was exiled because the Romans said, no, the only exception, there's only one exception, it's Jews. If you're a Christian, no exception. John said, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna honor Caesar as a god. And they said, off to Devil's Island you go. So, there he is. He's on the devil, he's on, he's on the island, um, um, uh, of Patmos. And it's the Lord Day's, Lord's Day, that's Sunday. Um, it's, uh, by this time the Christians have already started calling the first day of the week the Lord's Day. And I was worshiping in the Spirit. Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It, it said, Write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So he turned around. Who's talking to me? Who just told me to write a book? And I saw seven gold lampstands. We'll come back to those. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. The Son of Man, if you remember from the the Gospel accounts, uh, the biographies of Jesus tell us this is one of his favorite... um, favorite uh, nicknames for himself. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, uh, uh, I think, 60-odd times in the in the uh, New Testament. So he sees someone like the Son of Man. Uh, the word itself comes from the Old Testament, um, and we heard it during the op- opening acclamation. But uh, the Son of Man is the Messiah. It's the king that God had promised. Uh, he is the one who's going to sort out everything that's wrong with the world and then rule in this... Um, in this era of harmony and peace and bliss. So I see him, and he's wearing a long robe and a gold sash. He's dressed like a king. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. To understand that, you know, we're a youth-obsessed culture. That's because we live a long time. In this culture, probably the average age of death was maybe 30, 35 years old. So if you met somebody who actually had white hair, you paid attention. You asked them for advice. You said, hey, Somehow you figured out the secret of living a long time. How can you, how can you help me? So in that culture, to have white hair was a sign, here's somebody who's wise, somebody I need to pay close attention to because they've got something to say. So he says, he had, he had the white hair, his eyes were like flames of fire, his feet were like polished burn, bronze, his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. Now again, if you picture this literally, you're going to have a very confusing picture of Jesus. But the idea is, it's a lot. It's a very impressive and pretty intimidating picture that he's looking at. And he says, his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. Uh, we drove across Arizona during my vacation, and um, it's very I had forgotten how bright the sun can be in its noonday brilliance. Here it just goes on forever. But in Arizona, it's like, ah, uh, it's just too intense. And he finds it too intense. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me. What happened to the stars? Right? Has he still got them in his hand? Well, again, we don't want to treat this literally. We want to treat it as apocalyptic literature. We want to understand what it means. The important thing here is that whatever happened to the stars, he's now comforting me, saying, it's okay. It's okay. Take it easy. He says, don't be afraid. He says, I am the first and the last. 
That's a title for God from the Old Testament. I am the living one, another title for God. And he says, I died. But look, I'm alive forever and ever. He's saying, look, the worst thing Caesar can do, right? He can, he can exile you to this island. That's bad. But the worst thing he can do is he can kill you. But look, he did that to me and I'm alive. He's got no power. He says, I have the keys of death in the grave. So he says, don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of me and you don't have to be afraid of Caesar. So write down what you've seen, both the things that are now happening, and that's what we're going to look at today, and then the rest of the book, the things that will happen. This is the meaning, by the way, he adds the text this on, the meaning of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the of the seven churches. Your, your Bible may have a, a footnote. The word angel means messenger. Um, and so all angels are messengers. Not all messengers are angels. So we don't know. Nobody knows. There's a, there's two, two meanings and about a hundred theories about who are the angels of those churches. But they are persons who have some kind of a connection to those seven churches he mentioned. And then he says the seven gold lampstands are the seven churches. And if you think about it, that makes sense. Christians are to be light in a dark world. We are to shine with the light. Jesus says we're light and salt. A, a church is a community of Christians, so a church is like a lampstand. So he interprets that for us. And then he begins immediately. He says, write this letter to the church, uh, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Let me tell you about Ephesus just because I don't know when I'll get another chance. Um, we went to Ephesus a couple of years ago. It's a big city in the west end of uh, Asia Minor. So um, chapter 2, Ephesus among others. And um, here's a picture of Ephesus. The main drag in Ephesus is right there. So it's a big city. Even the ruins are big. And um, uh, I don't know how big it really was uh, because they'd bust us around. It was that big. And so I didn't get a sense of how, how big it actually was. Um, this picture shows you why it's ruins. Um, that's a valley. And in, in, the, um, in the background, you can see what used to be a river has now silted up. So it's now a big uh, 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 valley you can farm in, but it's no, no good for a port city anymore. So... Um, it is still, though, a big city. This is the amphitheater that they've that they've uh, got there. And um, just for scale, um, uh, the next picture shows Margot. She's uh, about a, a quarter of the way up to the top. Um, and I was down at the bottom, and I uh, had to use my big zoom to get that. And I talked, and she could hear, hear me. I was just like, "Hey, Margot, can you hear me?" And she did. So it was pretty cool. They they knew their they knew their acoustics back in those days. So that's Ephesus. Uh, two more pictures of Ephesus. Um, this is a, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It is the Temple of Diana or Artemis. Um, and there's no way to photograph it except maybe with a drone or something. Uh, I tried to get a picture and it just doesn't. You can't get the scale. So this is one corner of it. But the next picture, this is the last picture coming up. That shows you how big each one of those columns are. They're huge. It must have been an amazing, well, it was one of the seven wonders of the world. Um, and because it was one of the seven wonders of the world, that meant that it was also a business. You know, people who venerated Artemis or Diana, they came from all over the ancient world to Ephesus to see this big temple and make their sacrifice, ask Diana for whatever Diana did. Um, and she was big business. We see that in the book of Acts. Uh, one of the silversmiths who makes little idols, uh, starts a riot because some Christians are saying Diana doesn't doesn't have any power. 
And so not only was John and the other Christians in trouble with the Roman emperor for political reasons because they didn't venerate uh, uh, Caesar, but the neighbors aren't very sympathetic. They kind of say, you know, you deserve what you get. Wouldn't hurt you to just have one more God. I've got 20. I don't know what your big deal is, but you're threatening my living. I make a, I make my living selling, you know, tourist trinkets to people who come to see the temple of Diana. So they face both a trouble from the government and trouble from their neighbors. And that's the situation in Ephesus. So uh, Jesus says to write a letter to each of the seven churches. We're only going to look um, at Ephesus today. Um, you can study the others at your leisure. So he says this, write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. He walks among the lampstands. That's the vision he had. What does that mean? Well, again, to a pagan culture, gods are up on Olympus. They don't come down. They don't bother with us. You know, we try to stay off their radar because no good can come of that. But Jesus says, I'm right here in your midst. You know, I'm not stuck up in heaven somewhere where I can't tell what's going on. He says, I know what's going on. I'm right here among you. I'm walking around among the, the, the lampstands here. And he says, because of that, I know what's going on. He says, I know all the things you do. I've seen all your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they're apostles, but are not. Picture the ancient world. Some guy shows up. He says, hi, my name is Demosthenes. I come from Jerusalem and I bring greetings. I want you to put me up with a house and I'll tell you some interesting facts about the church that you don't, don't know about. What do you do? Do you email somebody back in Jerusalem? Do you phone them? That's a hard problem. And Jesus commends them because he says they don't simply take everybody at face value. He says, he says you have examined the claims of those who say they're apostles but are not. You've discovered they're liars. So good for you. This is a good thing. You have endured patiently in the midst of suffering. But he says, but it's cost you too much. You know, you have succeeded, but you paid a heavy price for it. He says, I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at at first. See, the point he's saying is that theology is important. It's important you get right with these guys who show up and say they're apostles. But theology isn't the whole picture. Theology is important, but love is more important. You remember the great commandment. A lawyer comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, which is the most important commandment in the whole Hebrew Scriptures? And Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And a second commandment, equally important, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus says this church has forgotten to do. They've got their theology right. Their doctrine is dead on. But they've forgotten to love. And who can blame them? You might get rounded up. The police might come through your neighborhood looking for Christians. Some guy, some guy at the market says, hey, do you know any Christians? I'm, I'd like to, you know, I'm new in town. I'd like to worship with them. 
What are you going to say? You're going to say, buzz off. I don't know any Christians. Get out of here. Right? He's saying, he's saying, you've, you've gotten this fortress mentality. You can no longer love your neighbors. And within, right? You start getting suspicious. You start having litmus tests. It's like, you know, I think I know their position on the latest overture coming out of General Assembly. I think I know how they're going to vote on the constitutional amendment in the United Methodist Church. So they start building these litmus tests. They start saying, in order to maintain our purity, in order to maintain our authenticity as a church, we have to have right doctrine. And Jesus says, yes, doctrine is important, but love is more important. The Apostle Paul says, while knowledge makes us feel important, knowledge puffs us up, it is love that builds up. It is love that strengthens the church. Jesus, in fact, the night of the Last Supper, he told his disciples that um, it was by this that they would know who his disciples were. He says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. And Jesus says, you've lost the plot. You've got your doctrine right, but you've forgotten how to love. See, the, the book of Revelation is evergreen. This is not something that only happens when the emperor is persecuting you. This is something that happens in churches. Churches back then and churches today. And what Jesus is saying is get your doctrine right, but don't forget how to love. He's saying, yes, you, you have sorted out the claims of the false apostles. You did that great, but you forgot how to love. You've built a fortress where you exclude the outsiders and you stare with suspicion at one another inside. In the New Testament, Christians are called to love one another, to bear with one another, to encourage one another, to support one another. Fifty-nine different commands in the New Testament. Christians are told to one another, one another. And you can't do it if all you do is show up, get a little doctrine and go home. Jesus is saying, this is what church is about. Loving him, loving one another. If your idea of Christian community is to show up on Sunday, learn some doctrine, get correct, straight teaching, your theology is all right. Jesus says, I have this against you. You have forgotten how to love. So don't. Let's be the kind of community that Jesus calls the church in Ephesus to be. Right in our doctrine, but also loving. Jesus did it. Jesus held grace and truth in perfect tension. Andy Stanley says Jesus was a master of going up to people and saying, you are a terrible sinner. Let me give you a hug. I'm going to die for you. Jesus could somehow keep his doctrine right, Understand truth claims and at the same time be so loving that even his opponents found him loving. This is what the church is called to be. Not just the church in Ephesus, but our congregation. Let's be that kind of community. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for uh, this weird, mysterious book of Revelation. Um, We thank you that Jesus uh, walks among the churches, that he sees what we're dealing with individually 
and in our denominations and in our society. He knows the strains we're under. He knows, uh, he knows what churches are going through that are facing so much worse than we can even imagine. Uh, persecuted churches around the world today. He walks among the churches. And we give thanks, Lord, that, that he sees what they are dealing with. He sees what we are dealing with in our own lives. And he promises us fruit from the tree of life. If we only hang on, if we only endure. Lord, we pray that you would make us a loving church. Help us to keep our doctrine straight, but not, Lord, never at the expense of love. Help us to be a church that comes together not simply for some teaching, but for an opportunity to be one another for each other. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.